My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode reenacts scenes of war. You'll hear gunfire and descriptions of violence. Listener discretion advised. You're tuning into Service. John E. Bestricka, Private First Class. Veteran stories of hunger and war. They joined the service. Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember Pearl Harbor. A production from iHeartRadio. We used to just give these people the food from our mess kits. You ate what you could get and be thankful for what you were getting. I'm your host, Jacqueline Raposo. Every farmer in the land must realize fully that his production is part of war production, and that he is regarded by the nation as essential to victory. The American people expect him to keep his production up. The lives of 123 million Americans changed drastically in 1941. On top of the 16 million men and 350,000 women who would join the armed forces, Six million workers would leave farm life for the military or to find heftier paychecks in war production industries, as we heard in our episode with Air Corps veteran Harold Bud Long. I got done high school. I had no money to send me to college. Dad says, I want to work the farm. You have the farm. I said, Dad, you want to work from daylight to dark, seven days a week? You don't know if you're going to have enough to pay the bills? Not for me. So I worked on salvage work on P-40s until I was drafted. The fields emptier, food shortages followed. Then, victory gardens, so named via optimistic government propaganda, like that 1942 fireside chat of President Roosevelt's we just repeated from Bud's episode. But there was something in that chat we withheld. Perhaps the most difficult phase of the manpower problem is the scarcity of farm labor in many places. I have seen evidences of the fact, however, that the people are trying to meet it as well as possible. In one community that I visited, a perishable crop was harvested by turning out the whole of the high school for three or four days. And in another community of fruit growers, the usual Japanese labor was not available. 
But when the fruit ripened... The usual Japanese labor FDR drops in there are the 117,000 persons of Japanese ancestry the government interred in concentration camps, 70,000 who were first-generation American-born citizens, Nisei, as they're called in Japanese. Today, we spend time with Lawson Ichiro Sakai, one of the Nisei who would join the Army's 442nd Regimental Combat Team in 1943. Because Lawson saw the most combat of our veterans thus far, and because he has such rich food stories throughout, this episode is a touch longer than our others, and we're going to spread supporting information out piecemeal. What's helpful to know at the top is the landscape upon which Japanese Americans moved in the United States before the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. Now, two pre-war, government-funded studies show Japanese immigrants posed zero threat to United States citizens. Still, anti-Japanese sentiment had been steadily rising since around the turn of the century, as we'll hear in an audio clip from a Navy training video. Politically, this was because Washington and the Empire of Japan had been competing for economic gain in China. Locally, Japanese farmers had control of 40% of California farm production by the start of World War II, dominating in areas like snap beans, celery, and tomatoes, and despite alien land laws enacted first in 1913 prohibiting Japanese immigrants or their American-born children from buying or long-term leasing agricultural land. And, having farmed small plots back in Japan, they were really good at producing a lot of food on their acreage. At that time, the average American farm was valued at $38 an acre, a Japanese-American-run farm was worth 280. Let's take just this with us as we slow and sit and travel back in time to California with Lawson Ichiro Sakai. My name is Lawson Ichiro Sakai. I'm an American of Japanese ancestry. I was born October 27, 1923, in Montebello, California. We were surrounded by open land and a few orchards. My uncle and aunt immigrated from Japan in 1895, worked hard, saved money, and they bought this five acres in Montebello before the alien land law was passed. My father came about 1905. He went back to Japan, brought back his wife, we had a five-acre, not a greenhouse, it's a lath house with space between laths so the sun can filter in. We grew what they call the asparagus plebosus fern, and that was something that the florists would use for decorating. We also had a 13-acre ranch. My father spent a lot of his time there taking care of the ranch. My parents were Seventh-day Adventists, which is very unusual for Japanese, who are mostly Buddhists. We very rarely ate meat. No pork, duck, or fish without scales. We had chickens, so my job was to bring in the eggs every day. And on Friday, my aunt would pick out a chicken for me to kill. She always had this quart jar of chicken stock in the refrigerator, and we ate a lot of vegetables. My older sister was doing most of the cooking, and she didn't do Japanese cooking, she did American cooking. So we ate a lot of 
spaghetti, non-meat food that Seventh-day Adventists would eat. When I was age five, my older sisters hauled me off to their school. We were very limited in this little church school. By high school, I wanted to play football and baseball, and they didn't have that. So I went to a public high school, and I played football, baseball, team sports. I had graduated in 1941, so in September, I went to Compton Junior College. And I was playing football and enjoying everything. My parents were always on edge. They didn't know what would happen if Japan and America went to war, which they could sense in the years before 1941. They could not become U.S. citizens at that time. The Japanese are not easy to know. I've lived among them 10 years, and I can testify that they are as different from ourselves as any people on this planet. On December 7, 1941, I was doing homework in my room, listening to the radio. And that's when the announcer broke in and said that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. My parents who were out working, when they came in at noon for lunch, I told them, your country bombed my country. By three o'clock that afternoon, the FBI came to our house looking for my uncle. He was the head of UFA, United Farmers Association, the largest produce market in Los Angeles. The FBI picked up a number of business leaders, farmers, doctors, lawyers, men of standing in the Japanese community. They took them all away. My father-in-law had 1,500 acres of garlic. Five acres would have been a huge garlic farm. My father-in-law was sent to Bismarck, North Dakota. Most of the people didn't know where their father went to. Monday, December 8th, I told my father, three of my classmates and myself, we're going to Long Beach to enlist. He says, that's good. You're an American, you should go with your friends. My classmates that I've been playing football with for three, four years, they're all Caucasian. They were taken in right away. And then when they got to me, they said, you're a Jap. We don't want Japs in the Navy. Get the hell out of here. My classmates said, the hell with the Navy. If they don't want you, we're not going either. We all left. We continued beyond football and to baseball. 
February 19, Executive Order 9066 meant that U.S. government could move all of the Americans of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast to, President Roosevelt called them, my concentration camps. The West Coast had to be evacuated. The eastern half was called a safe zone. So my parents decided, we'll go to the safe zone. The 13-acre ranch, they just left it, like most people did. What could they do with the farm? The five-acre lath house, they left in charge of another flower grower and told them, we'll be back in a month or two, so just take care of it while we're gone and keep the profits. And that was one of the main reasons for the evacuation. The Japanese farmers had hundreds and thousands of acres already producing. People growing five or ten acres were saying, these guys are going to run us out of business. Those are the people who just walked in and took over. We drove up the coast to Porterville. Some 13 miles up in the hills was a hot springs owned by a Seventh-day Adventist man. He opened the place up to nine or ten Japanese families. I worked helping a man that lived there, chopping trees for firewood. In turn, he would milk his cow and give me quarts of milk, which is really good. I wasn't much of a milk drinker until then, but cutting lumber, felling trees, oh, it was heavy work. 18 years old, I figured I could handle anything. I guess I was in semi-shock. I didn't tell the school administration I was leaving. I just picked up and left. Some of the students were saying, what happened to our third baseman? All of a sudden, there's no Japanese boys. It's hard to believe. Here's all these people dressed up in their finest clothes, standing on a curb with their suitcase, waiting for the bus. They've lost everything. You'd think they'd be up in arms or weeping. They have a term in Japanese, shikata ganai, it can't be helped. Our first generation people said, we came to this country and if that's what they want to do, we have to obey. And they had a very strict rule that we, their children, the Nisei, American citizens, obey authority. The older Nisei had to be either in shock or probably very angry but what the authorities say, we will obey. So we all just went along. I knew I hated to leave school. You hate to just leave. A couple of months goes by, the federal government said, the whole state of California has to be evacuated now. So again, it was a big blow that we had to leave. Executive Order 9066 only removed the Japanese from what were considered military zones, crudely mapped areas that eventually made up most of the West Coast. There was little social protest, but some civilians in safe states took in refugees, and this is how Lawson and his family were able to move to Delta, Colorado. A Seventh-day Adventist church there had volunteered to host a Japanese family, and his was randomly selected. Of what was left behind, 258,000 acres of farmland were turned over to the Farm Security Administration. When we return, we'll hear about what shifted so that Lawson could finally don a uniform 
Stay with us. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Service, veteran stories of hunger and war from iHeartRadio. I'm Jacqueline Raposo. While Lawson was moving from place to place, the president of the Japanese American Citizens League, Mike Masaoka, was challenging Congress to let the Japanese-American boys fight. Because resistance was so strong, he made an extreme offer. The Nisei would make up a suicide squad to prove their patriotism. It was controversial, but not an empty threat. Five sons of the Masaoka family volunteered. 
The Army activated the all-Japanese-American 100th Infantry Battalion in the fall of 1943, made primarily of Nisei from the Hawaiian National Guard, who faced less resistance to fighting than the interred Nisei on the continent, some enlistees of whom were beaten by older Nisei, or rejected by their families for wanting to fight for the country that imprisoned them. The 100th proved their mettle through Africa and up into Italy, facing heavy combat to clear the pathway to Rome only to be shoved aside so that other troops could pass them by and take the glory, lingering 10 kilometers out until ordered to move northwest, where they made up the 442nd Regimental Combat Team with two newly arrived battalions. Lawson was in 2nd Battalion, Company E, waiting for them. He had enlisted as soon as he was able, becoming one of the first 1,500 Nisei to slowly make their way from settlements around the country to Camp Shelby, Mississippi. Let's head there now, and follow as he spends a year in training before deploying to Italy himself. Boys are coming to Camp Shelby, one by one. Now, food, you had to get used to it. Of course, if you were a truck driver, they made you a cook. If you were a cook, they made you a medic. That's how the military worked. So the food was really lousy at the beginning. <laughs> Until these guys learned how to cook all the rations that they were getting. Like mutton? That's awful. Old sheep, meat full of fat. And, oh, it tastes terrible. I never want to eat mutton again. And we eat off of an aluminum mess kit. As a cover, you flip it over, so they put some food here and some in the cover. If you have something here like jello, cook it just as loud as to pour the gravy right on the jello because you had no other place to put it. When you go out on maneuvers for lunch, usually it's two pieces of dry bread with mustard and a piece of salami or ham. Sunday, the kitchen is closed. They have cold cuts, but sometimes they have a whole bin full of fried spam. I would never eat it before. Jeez. <laughs> but when you're hungry like crazy, boy, you eat everything you can. Our regiment boarded a number of Liberty ships on May 1st, 1944. We were part of a very huge convoy, zigzagging because the German submarines were a threat. We didn't lose any ships, but it took us a whole month. I was fortunate. I was able to draw guard duty with the Navy. It was really good because even though I'm up on deck, going up and down, getting soaking wet, at least we got to eat with them. The Navy had really good food compared to what we had. We docked on May 30 into Naples, Italy. The first thing we noticed as we approached the harbor, these Italian rowboats with the men paddling while they're standing would come near the boat and they waved their hand. And then they had bags of oranges and they started throwing the oranges up to us. They're saying, cigarette, cigarette. So we're throwing packs of cigarettes down to them and throwing oranges up to us. They were blood oranges, and we'd never seen blood oranges before. We didn't find out till after we were on land that one cigarette would have been plenty for the oranges. What did we know? <laughs> we enjoyed the blood oranges anyway. <laughs> the war had moved north toward Rome. That's where we formed the 442nd Regiment with three battalions. 
100th was the first. Then we, the second and third battalions, were going into combat for the first time. That very first day, we were heading pretty much in a flat area with hills on the side. And it was all quiet. Then we were just kind of moving along slowly. All of a sudden, the Germans started firing from the left side and the right side and shot mortars where we were in the middle. Immediately, our company commander was killed. I could remember seeing specks of dust flying in the dirt coming toward me and wondering, that's funny, I see specks but I don't see any bullets. All of a sudden I heard it right over my head. That's a German burp gun. Our submachine gun goes tut, 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 tut. The German burp gun was We'd never seen a burp gun before. Hundreds of rounds are going. Luckily for me, the barrel shot the bullet right over me. And you could hear the bullet. Lieutenant Zukowski had us in the wrong position. And now he got killed. Sergeant Morita took over and we moved behind a little ridge. The battalion commander could see what was happening and he ordered the 100th battalion come over and the 100th got behind the Germans. I don't know how many they killed, two, three hundred. We captured a number of vehicles, over 50 German prisoners. So even though we had a huge loss in manpower, the battle itself was a very successful one. But that's how we started combat. Within that roughly two months' time, we were on the front line maybe three or four times, and of course off the front line just as often. You can't go more than a week. You never change clothes. You never eat hot food. You're eating canned sea ration or packaged K ration, and you're hoping to get water. If they can't bring water up to you every night, you fill your canteen with the dirty water if there's a stream or something. They used to give us tablets when we had to use stagnant water. You just need liquid. Even at night, you sleep maybe an hour, you're being shot at. We do it to them. Don't want them to sleep either. That's when the reserves bring up food, ammunition, and water, and they can carry the wounded back. But sometimes it can't be done. You're pinned down, maybe. All you can do is go forward with whatever you have. Before we get into combat, we're not really worried about what's going to happen. But once we actually can see people getting wounded and the horrors of what's happening when people are killing each other, your mindset changes. You're more protective of each other, your squad, your platoon, your company. Outside of that, very seldom you meet somebody you really know. But you know that they are there to protect you and you're there to protect them. We're charging, running, maneuvering to a position and covering whoever's in front, shooting to make sure that we keep the Germans from spotting our men that are going forward. They're retreating, so they've had time to dig foxholes. They can always occupy the higher location, shooting down. We're successful most of the time, but that's why our casualties were so high. You can't advance if you're sitting still. 
we did manage to move all the way up past the Arno River through Florence over to the coast where the 442nd was sent to join the 36th Division to begin the invasion of southern France. The battle in Normandy was taking such a huge toll that we didn't have very much resistance when we landed in France. We're only about 45 miles from the German border. Main city in that area was called Bruyere. That was our objective, take the city of Bruyere. In northern Italy, it was summertime. We're in open territory. In France, a completely different situation. This is close to the middle of October. Most of the homes are down the bottom, and there were hills on both sides covered with very thick forest because forestry was one of the main industries of that area. As we're heading in the flat area like we did in Italy, it started to rain, just getting cold. The shots came from the hillsides. We had to suddenly climb the mountain into the forest. It was a completely different type of fighting. We're having to go tree to tree to root out the Germans. We had to look for the uniform, what the helmet looked like. You never knew who was out there, your man or the enemy. Not only that, the Germans didn't have Air Force because the Americans had pretty much wiped them out. But they had the anti-aircraft gun capable of shooting down airplanes. The Germans were using that weapon on the infantry. Everything is coming down like an umbrella. The explosion cuts tree limbs, branches, fragments, besides the shrapnel. And there's no way to hide. Men get crushed by a tree limb, three, four hundred pounds, coming straight down on top of them. Really a horrible experience. At night, the cooks, the band members, whoever was available, would have to carry a five-gallon can of water by foot. That is really heavy. Ammunition and water, food was secondary, and medical supplies to help our medics that are on the front line. As they come up, slip sliding, if it's muddy and wet, you bring two or three men off the line. We place them. Bring them back, even if it's sort of half an hour or 15 minutes, and maybe they can get some food, water for their canteen, maybe ammunition, and then they're ready to circulate back to the front and they keep rotating them in. More than half of our men were lost fighting through the forest to take over the city of Bruyere and the rail line that went through there. Securing the railway was a huge win. It cut a main support line for the German front and allowed the Allies to then move troops, food, and supplies. But in the eight days it took to capture Bruyere and neighboring Bifontaine, veterans remember the desperate Germans firing at their wounded men as medics removed them from the field. It would end as one of the costliest battles of World War II. When we return... We hear how the 442nd fueled up after this long fight. Stay with us. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. 
But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Service, veteran stories of hunger and war from iHeartRadio. I'm Jacqueline Raposo. In our episode with Air Corps veteran Harold Bud Long, we heard how General Patton wanted to be the first to have his troops cross the line into Germany, a line Hitler was holding at all costs. Lawson's General Dahlquist had the same goal. Let's go back with Lawson to that front line in late autumn of 1944. We came off the line on October 23. Grimy. They hadn't had a shower for a week or two. They had shower trucks, and they could heat the water. They had a big bar of lye soap. They would probably wipe the paint right off your car. (laughs) So you'd get cleaned up, and you get a new set of clothing. They had the mess set up. Open, of course, but hot stoves, hot food. The first hot food you've had for eight or ten days. 
The next day, we were ordered to gear up to go back again. Wait a minute, we just came off the front line. The 1st Battalion of the 141st Regiment had been surrounded by Germans. The 36th Division had been unable to reach them. We had just finished eight days of huge battle. An order is an order, so we obeyed. On October 25, we start up again, same place that we came out of. It's raining, miserable, here we go. The trap battalion is about five miles farther up. October 27, my 21st birthday. I was feeling pretty good about that. We were making an attack. All of a sudden, a German popped up and shot me point blank. But he missed. I just went tut tut tut, hit him in the head. When his helmet came off, there was a 14 or 15 year old boy. He must have been more scared than I was. We're all scared. You never know when the next bullet or the next shrapnel is going to hit you. The next morning at daybreak, we're approaching where the trapped men are. They're running out of food and ammunition. We have to get to them. The Germans must have suspected something. They started chilling. Treebers all around us. Nobody could move. They tried to hide as much as you could behind a tree or a rock. That's when a large piece of shrapnel hit me in the back and that red out piece of metal went sideways right into my ribs and stayed there. It just hurt so much. Burning, painful, and you can't breathe. Your body curls up into a ball, and I don't remember anything. I don't know when the medic got to me. He must have determined that he could save my life, and he shot me full of morphine. It took five days for the 442nd to go through the five miles of forest, push the Germans back, and finally reach the trapped men. They had no medical supplies, no food, no water. They had so little ammunition. They formed a circle. No matter which direction the Germans are coming from, they were gonna make a last stand. There were 211 men left. 200 of our men were killed to that rescue. General Dahlquist orders to the 442nd was don't stop, keep chasing the Germans. They didn't know that was the 442nd that rescued them. When the military press made the statement, the lost battalion has been rescued, they never mentioned the 442nd. None of us really thought anyone would come home alive. Most of our families were prisoners of war, guarded by American soldiers with the machine guns pointed in at them. So what do we do to remove that situation? We needed to let the government know that we may look like the enemy, but we were true Americans and we wanted to fight for this country. When I woke up, I was on a hospital train going to the American hospital in Dijon for surgery. 
it took about two months of recovery and I was able to go back and join my company at the border between Italy and France. The 442 was sent back down to patrol that area. Well, we were inside this concrete fort at the top. It was very steep and the jeeps couldn't get up there. Some of the supplies had to be brought in by donkey. Water, K-rations and C-rations. Sometimes they could bring hot food up, but not very often. If you were down in the city, Nice, Cannes, you were probably staying in a hotel, eating hot food three times a day. Just our luck to be up there. After the war was over, we could get passes into town. Occasionally, you would run into a Chinese restaurant. Of course, the boys really would head for that because you'd get rice. It was very hard to get enough rice for our men because everybody wanted rice. And the ration, they mostly potatoes in the U.S. Army. Wherever the cooks could, they would trade our potatoes for other groups' rice. Naturally, we didn't have much Japanese-style food. Our most popular food might have been fried shrimp or maybe hamburgers and hot dogs. We did a few of those in the Army mess. It wasn't too bad. My parents, we never corresponded during the war. I didn't see them for almost four years. They didn't write English, so they never wrote a letter to me. And when I did write a letter, it was to my sister, who was in one of the concentration camps. My sister had married a doctor from Hawaii, and she was pregnant with her first child. Her husband was sent to the concentration camp in Poston, Arizona. The doctors and nurses said, we'll hide her. They kept her hidden in the hospital for two months before she gave birth. Of course, the birth is recorded. A week after the child was born, the authorities found out she was sent to join her husband. The war ended in May. And around July, I was assigned to go to Rome and become a second lieutenant at the Army Training School. And I told Captain Burns, the war is over and I want to go home. Do everything you can to get me out of here. July, August, September, October, finally I got a call that I should get ready to go. I finally arrived back in Newport News, Virginia, the third week of November. They put me in a train, and I had a duffel bag, and eventually I finally got to Fort MacArthur in Los Angeles. I don't remember how I got home. I knew where my home was. I assumed my parents were living there. I went to the front door, rang the bell, and sure enough, my aunt answered the door. I was home and they were home. I was finally discharged on December 11. That's when they said, take off your uniform. You're a civilian now. Get out of here. Completing seven major campaigns, the 442nd casualties totaled 9,486. That's 50% of those total who would serve under the 442 from 1943 through 1946. 
and they're often called the Purple Heart Battalion for their sacrifice. To this day, the 442nd is also the most decorated unit in military history. Upon their return home, President Truman remarked the Nisei fought not only the enemy, but prejudice. Yet their fight continued. The interred Japanese had been paid one quarter of what other farmhands were paid, and not nearly what they had taken in as farm owners. At the Tool Lake camp, those who had refused to work were fined. At Manzanar, botanists and chemists who had made scientific advancements for the Allied cause would not receive public recognition. It's been estimated their incarceration lost the Japanese Americans up to $4 billion by today's values. By 1960, Japanese American farmers would number only a quarter of what they had pre-war. And it wasn't until 1988 that President Reagan signed legislation offering each survivor an apology and $20,000 in compensation. And Lawson's family. His parents had to evict the flower grower they had left using their property because he refused to give it back upon their return. His uncle requested repatriation and returned to Japan. Lawson went to Pepperdine University and worked in farming and the shipping of agriculture before he opened a travel agency, which he sold after 20 years so to retire in 1991. He lives in Northern California to this day. You can hear more of his story, like how Lawson became his legal name and how combat experience led to PTSD in our episode, Dad, I Can't Talk About It, and in clips on our social media. We're at Service Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you to the Japanese American Veterans Association for connecting us with Lawson for this episode. I highly urge you to check out Lawson's page at servicepodcast.org to learn more about the Japanese American contribution to farming and the front lines. In our next episode, we head back to the Pacific with Navy Lieutenant Robert Hansen, exploring how income affected how we lived, served, and ate during this time. Service is a production of iHeartRadio. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jacqueline Raposo. Colby McDonald and Andrew Stesler engineered our interviews with Lawson. Gabrielle Collins is our supervising producer. Christopher Hasiotis, our executive producer. Thank you for listening. And thank you to those serving and those who have served. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.